Do this. Stand with me and let's read Joel chapter 2 from the prophet Joel in your Old Testament. Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. If you're a guest with us, we are in a series on the minor prophets. We're preaching through all 12 minor prophets. And so we're now, uh, we've preached Obadiah. Now we're in Joel. We're in Joel chapter 2. The title of the message today is Lament and Repent. You might be thinking, well, that was last week's message. Well, I didn't want to write another one, so I'm just going to slap chapter 2 and preach the same thing. Chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Just so you know, what's going on here is there is an, a warning of an invading army that, that, that is soon to come on the children of Israel for their disobedience. It's God's gracious hand of discipline on them. Chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion, Joel says. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. Verse 2. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness. There is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be ever, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Verse 3, fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumblings of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like a warrior, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his own way, and they do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. This is the description, these first nine verses of the invading army, whether it's Assyria or Babylon. Verse 10. Now here's the real invader. The earth shakes before them, the earth, the earth trembles, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. So verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion, so consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber between the vestibule and the altar. Let the priests and the ministers of the Lord weep and say, spare your people, O Lord. Make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Can we ask God's blessing over his word? This is difficult word. It's poetry word. It's a genre that sometimes it's hard for us to get. Would you lock us in? Because we have something here from you that I think is 
essential for our souls. It's essential for our souls to know what your character is like and to let your character transform our life as we leave this place today. We need it and we ask for it. Holy Spirit, do your work. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. All right, well, if you'd, you can be seated. We're going to look through this text at Joel chapter 2. If I can get my notes to open up. So first is what you see in this text. Verses 1 through 9 is talking about an invading army. If you look on your outline, uh, you should have an outline, I think, in your seats. There's an invading army that's coming, a warning of an invading army that's coming for them. This is verse 1 through 9. Now, whether this might have been Babylon, this might have been Assyria, we're not quite sure. I kind of think it's Babylon. I talked to one um, one scholar this past week, and he said, no, you're wrong, it's Assyria. So I don't know. It's one of the two. But I'm probably right. Although he's he's got a lot more degrees than I have. He says in verse 1, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Usually when you blow a trumpet, you were warning that war was coming, that you needed to prepare yourself for battle. But the interesting thing when you read this whole chapter, they really didn't need to prepare themselves for battle against Assyria or Babylon. What they really needed to do is prepare themselves to battle their own souls. They needed to lament so that they would repent. They needed this to happen. And if they did that, there's a possibility that this disaster would relent itself. So they blow the trumpet. So the prophet says blow the trumpet. But really the, the war really is against themselves. But nonetheless, there's an invading army that's coming. And as you continue to look at this, it, it, it points out in one, uh, continue looking at verse 1. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. Now you see this word, day of the Lord, all through Joel, all through the minor prophets, the day of the Lord. It's ultimately pointing to there is a day coming where the Lord will right every wrong, where he will bring in his kingdom, justice will rain down. Now if you're in Christ, you look forward to that day. If you're not in Christ, you 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 are scared of that day. But that day is coming. And just a side note, you ever wonder how you can forgive people when they've done you wrong because there's a day of the Lord? You can let go of any justice and judgment that you think you got to measure out to people because there's a day of the Lord. What encourages us to actually live a holy life? There's a day of the Lord coming. Like what, what, why do we look forward to his coming someday? Because there's a day of the Lord coming. I, I want to be ready for that day. I want that day. I'm not worried about condemnation because I'm a follower, but what I don't want to have happen is that that day of the Lord come and I don't hear from the lips of my Savior, well done, thy good and faithful servant. So look at verse 2. There, he describes this day of the Lord. It's a day of darkness and gloom. And, and by the way, um, sometimes in Scripture there's an immediate uh, close prophecy and long-range prophecy. So when he says the day of the Lord, it's talking in particular context to the people of Judah or Israel right here. But it also has a prophetic element that it's pointing towards the ultimate day of the Lord that's coming in Armageddon. But verse 2, he describes what this earthly day looks like, and you can see the residue of what Armageddon will look like. But he says in verse 2, a day of darkness and gloom when this invading army of Babylon comes on them or Assyria. A day of clouds of thick darkness, like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Someone powerful is coming, and like there has never been before, nor will be again after them the years of all my generations. This is one of the reasons I, I think it's Babylon, because 
just an epic empire. But nonetheless, whoever you think it is, they were a powerful people in our text. They were people to be feared. They were people that they were aggressive. They were like an onslaught. They were like a cloud of gloomy darkness over the tops of the mountains. Verse 3, they had a scorched earth policy. Fire devours them. It's like Sherman's march on 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 Georgia. Fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them. So this invading army was going to bring in just a destruction of the land, an absolute cataclysm of the land, a warning that it's coming. Verse 4, their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses they run. I don't know if you've ever been at the face of a, a, um, a horse stampede, but it can be menacing and intimidating. That's the kind of people that are coming for Judah and Israel. And as with the rumblings of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle. So this is terrible, The what's coming. By the way, just a side note, God is warning them. God's warnings are 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 meant to bring us to repentance. It's his goodness. It's his goodness that he would even give us any type of warning, right? I mean, some, some people think God is trying to be intimidating. No, his warnings are actually us seeing the goodness of God, of him being long-suffering and saying, I want to throw this out there so you have plenty of time to react to it. Verse 6, nonetheless, the invading army. Verse 6, before them people are in anguish, all faces grow pale. Have you ever been just so scared of a situation that your face just went pale? That's them. Like warriors, verse 7, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They're coming up the walls of Jerusalem. By the way, this is another reason why I think this is talking about the Babylonian Empire coming against the southern uh, the southern Judah because that's where the temple was. That's where the walls would be. That's where Jerusalem was. But nonetheless, I could be wrong, but probably not. That's what the great... Charles Barkley once wrote a book called, I could be wrong, but probably not. Great book. Never read it, but I like the title. Be a great sermon. Probably wrong, but probably, probably wrong, but probably not. Verse 7, they march each his own way and they do not swerve from their path. Whoever this is, if it's Babylon, they were, they were disciplined to not move out of formation. Verse 8, they do not jostle one another. Each marches in his own path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. All the defense systems of Judah, all the can't hold back Babylon. Verse 9, they leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. This is the invading army that's coming. It's intimidating and it's going to happen. And the whole reason it's happening, people, is because the children of Israel, the children of Judah, are not repenting for their sins. They're worshiping idols. They're worshiping false gods. They're walking away from Moses' commandment. And the Lord, in his tender mercy, is coming after them. Now, you may go like, that's not tender mercy. to For them to be put in captivity and for their land to be destroyed, yeah, it's God's tender mercy because 
They deserve to be completely eradicated. But we discover when we read the rest of this whole text, when we read, when we get to the end of the prophets, we find that God actually eventually brings a remnant back to the land. He brings restoration back to them. God could have eradicated them, but God is Yahweh. He's the covenant-keeping God who keeps His word when man doesn't keep His word, who is faithful when we're faithless. And so He brings them back to the land. It's God's kindness that He would even warn them. It's God's kindness that He wouldn't completely eradicate them. To look any other way about it is to think way too well of ourselves. And I know it's hard because our Western culture paints us out to be really great people. But at the core of us, we are not great people. Jesus is great. If there's any good in us, it's only a result of the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. But nonetheless, this army's coming. This army's coming. And it's God's tender mercy to warn them about what it's going to be like. So that they would lament and hopefully they would repent. Now look at verse 10. Here's the interesting thing. Although it's an invading army, I kind of think it's Babylon, so I'll kind of talk more like it's Babylon for the rest of the message. It really wasn't Babylon that they should fear. I mean, Babylon is just a pawn in God's overall plan. There's someone else that they should fear more. There's someone else who's in control of this whole thing. Look at verse 10. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. And the stars withdraw their shining. So if you look on your outline, number two on your outline is the sovereign leader of the invading army. And the sovereign leader of the invading army is Yahweh himself, the, the one true God, the I, I am who I am. That's who's actually leading this army, in which is kind of hard to take in, but, but actually it's the truth we need to know. So if it's Babylon that's coming, it's really the Lord that's in control. And by the way, when you look at verse 10, where, did the sun and the moon go dark and the stars withdraw their shining cosmically when this happened? No. But what happens in prophecy sometimes is there's immediate things and then long range. So when you read this text, you can, you can tell that for, for the people, this was, this was a devastating thing that would happen on the southern kingdom of Judah. But you can see this point forward to like in Matthew 24, you see the cosmic realities of what's going to happen when Armageddon happens, when the Lord comes back and sets everything right. You can see at the Lord's coming that the sun and the moon are going to be darkened in Matthew 24. The stars withdraw their shining. So there's an immediate prophecy, then a long range prophecy that this is pointing to. But number 11, here's the crux of the matter. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Who's his army? Well, and this text, his army, if we're calling it Babylon, it's that earthly army, Babylon. Now, someday he'll bring back his own army. But in this text, it's, it's the army of, let's say it's Babylon. Isn't that disturbing? His people, Judah, the children of Israel, they're his people, but yet the Lord's leading another nation. They're his nation. Israel's his nation, but he's leading another nation. Isn't that interesting? You know this, you ever wonder sometimes... Why does it seem like the wicked prosper? You know, the wicked prosper sometimes because of our unrepentance. And God uses the wicked sometimes to bring his loving hand of fatherly discipline in our own world. Like Babylon, by the way, Babylon thought they were great. Even their king thought they were great. By the way, if you read Daniel sometime and read about Nebuchadnezzar, he thought he was so great and gave such glory to himself that the Lord basically made him lose his mind for seven years. Because really, Babylon isn't that great. They're just, they're just great for this moment because the Lord has this sovereign hand on him. By the way, just as a side note, there's it, whatever talents and abilities you have, even if you're like, you're good at doing business and going out and making money, you know, it's really not you that's really that great. In fact, intrinsically, there's really nothing great about you. It, 
It's really the sovereign Lord's hand that's on your life. So don't presume upon his grace and act like you're something great because none of us are. In fact, here's what we get sometimes, even in our marriages, I discover, and we know nothing about this. Do you ever think to yourself, man, I am such a, you know, when I look at what other men, how other men do, and I look at myself, boy, my spouse is so blessed to have me, right? Or, or vice versa. When I look at what I do compared to, and you know what you do when you do that, you're actually comparing their weaknesses to your strengths, right? When actually we compare ourselves to the holiness of God. And, and really anything that we do is really a result of His loving grace and His sovereign hand on our life. We, we, there are no peacocks in heaven, okay? No one's boasting about themselves. If you don't know what a peacock is, we'll, we'll, we'll talk later. So he says this, the Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. It's really not Babylon that's great. It's the Lord who's leading Babylon. And look at verse 11. He who executes his what? He who executes his what? I'm not going to say it. I'm going to let you say it. He who executes his what? Is powerful. So here's the deal. The Lord always keeps his word. If his word says it, it's true. If his word says it, it's worthy to be followed. And listen, I don't care what you think. I've heard people say this before. I know what the Bible says, but this is what I think. If that ever comes up in your mind, know that you're just dead wrong. Now, you can walk around like you're Babylon thinking that like you have this sovereign kind of power walking about. But in the end, it's the Lord who executes his word. It's powerful. The Lord always brings about. And the Lord has been telling them through the prophets over and over, even this text, that if you don't repent, this is what's coming for you. I don't want to do it, but I will for your good, for my glory. So he says, for the day the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So Joel says, like, when the Lord's day comes, in the immediate context here, when they would be conquered by Babylon, and the coming day when the Lord returns, but the day the Lord is very great and very awesome, who can endure it? No one can endure it. By the way, here's just some good news. There is one person that endured it, right? There's only one person that could ever endure the wrath of God and withstand it, and that's Jesus. That's why next week, what, why do we celebrate Easter? Because we're celebrating the resurrection. It's our receipt to say that, that Jesus did endure the wrath of God in our place. It, it's our justification for knowing that our sins are forgiven, that God is for us, not against us, that we have the Holy Spirit in our life, that we will be okay, and that we will have eternal life for Him. It's our justification. Who can endure it? They can't, but there is one that can. And that's Jesus. If you're here and you don't have Jesus as Lord and Savior, you will not be able to absorb the wrath of God someday. It will, it will ultimately decimate your soul. But I will tell you this. You can endure it if you have your faith in Jesus. Because really what happens is when I became a follower at 16, God's wrath is now spared for me because God's wrath was poured out on his son Jesus in my place. So someday when I die, I don't get the wrath of God. If I, if I got the wrath of God, there'd be no way I could endure it. Now, what's interesting is this. He points the, the, the verses one through nine about the invading earthly army that's coming. Then in verses 10 through 11, he points towards the, uh, the Lord who is actually the leader of the army, the sovereign leader and ruler of this army. Now, why would he point out? Why would he strike such fear into them? Which, by the way, if you look back at chapter 1, he described a locust plague that was symbolic of what this invasion would look like. And if you know anything about a locust plague, it was decimating to everything. It, it would destroy all the agriculture. Well, 
He does all that because point three on your outline, all that was done because he meant for them, he meant for that to help them to lament and repent. The invading army warning, the sovereign Lord who is true to his word, he told them that because he wants them to lament so that they would repent. That's what he's wanting them to do. Look in verse 12. He says this, even now declares the Lord. So although the Lord has told them what's going to happen, prophesied of it, Joel's telling them, we see the character of what God is like. And he says, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting. He says, fast. You know, when you fast, it's still good to fast today, by the way. There's nothing wrong with fasting. It's still a good discipline. When you fast, your hunger, your your stomach starts to hurt and hunger. And every time your stomach hurts and hungers, it's a reminder that you don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Every time you're fasting and you're going without food, you're, you're saying that whatever sin pattern you're struggling with, you're saying that ultimately doesn't satisfy me like you. In, in fact, if you're struggling with sin in your life and you feel like there's some some kind of sin that just seems to just grip a hold of you. Go through some times of fasting. And, and what that does is when, you, when you're when you able to go without food, I mean, it's kind of hard to go without food, just so you know. It, it's, you know, food's something that you kind of need. When you go without it and you live through the day, right? Like I've I've had people fast for a day and they're, you know, they're like, like, like by afternoon, they're kind of like, I don't know if I'm going to live. Like I am going to die. I will just shrivel up and not make it. But here's the deal. It is painful when you go through a day of fasting. Painful if you go through three days of fasting. Okay? But I will tell you this. At the end of those days, and you're still living, it's a way for you to look back at whatever sin you're struggling with, and you can say, you know what? I survived through this. I can survive through that. It's a discipline. He says, we, this is part of lamenting. Fast over this. If, if you're, you're stuck in a sin pattern, it might be time to start fasting. It's time to start weeping. Start crying over your sin when you see it and what it does to the Savior. When you see it as a holy offense against the holy God. He says, with mourning, lament. Mourning is this kind of, what's the difference between mourning and weeping? Weeping is you're crying because something, because something disappointing has happened. Mourning is, it is other dev- devastation like at a funeral. You have lost something you're never going to get back. Mourning, it's loud crying, it's wailing. It's, you're not really concerned about what ugly face looks like as you're crying, right? You're just mourning. He says, I want you to lament. Look at verse 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. So he says, gather people together. Gather the congregation. And y'all fast together. And y'all have a solemn assembly. No happy music. No happy things. No, you just sit in your sin and realize what it's done to the Lord and repent and let it lead you to repentance. Isn't this interesting? I just wonder. It seems like our modern church has no ability to do that. And most people who are visiting a church or even people who are a part of a church, if a church, I'm just telling you, let's just be honest with ourselves. Can we be honest with ourselves? Is that okay? Most of us, and I say most of us because I'm, I'm pointing the finger at me. I ask myself, would I be a part of a church that just said, okay, you know what? We're going to take the next three months and we're just going to call a solemn assembly and we're going to weep and cry over our sin and repent. Like, would I do that? Or would I say, well... I just like, I'm, I'm going to this church because I want the kind, it's not the kind of music I want, or this is, this isn't filling, filling me, or I'm just not getting fed the way I want to. Like, what if you just came as a congregation and just cried over your sin? And that's what they were doing. It's a solemn assembly. They're lamenting. He says in verse 16, gather the people. Concert, I know next week you're like, man, I'm not coming back here because we're just going to sit around and cry. 
I just wonder, could we ever do it? He says, verse 16, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his chamber, the bride her chamber. Like everybody was in on this, even the people who had something really important like a wedding. Everything was everything was like, clear the stage, guys. It's time to repent. The whole community comes together. Verse 17, between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests and the ministers of the Lord weep and say, spare your people, O Lord. Make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? The leaders are jumping into this and saying, Lord, if, if you destroy us, what will the nations say about your holy character? What will people say? Because everybody knows that we're, that we're Yahweh's covenant people. What will happen to your name? So from the leaders to the community to on down, everybody is lamenting over their sin. Not lamenting in a way that, that says, well, God will forgive me because I'm lamenting. It's, it's that this lamenting, that, like I can't do anything but lament because I am broken for what my sin has done to the Savior. So they're lamenting. Now, here's why ultimately God wants this lamenting, this weeping, fasting, mourning, this calling solemn assemblies. By the way, I mean, like, do this. If you're struggling with sin, do this. Aside from the fasting and weeping and mourning, call together some good friends and have them cry out to the Lord with you over your sin. Have them mourn with you over your sin. If you're entrenched in some kind of sin, like call your friends together, call your discipleship group together, call people from your church together, and just say, would you weep and cry and pray for me? Here's the sin I'm struggling with. Here's the devastation that it's doing in my life. Would you pray with me? Would you cry with me? Would you weep with me? Would you call out to God with me? What's interesting, most of us wouldn't do that. Most of us don't even want to confess our sin because we're afraid what people would think about us. But here's the thing. If the God of heaven loves us, even while we're yet sinners, why are we afraid what everybody else is going to think about us? In fact, wouldn't it be better if to get radical with our sin than to protect our reputation? I mean, why are we trying to protect our reputations? The Lord already knows about it anyways. And in, in the second thing, the more I try to protect my reputation, it just makes me walk in pride. Because really, there's really nothing for me to protect when it comes to reputation. But here's what happens. When people aren't trying to protect themselves anymore, they lament. They're not, they're not ashamed to confess their sin. They're not ashamed to bring it out. They're not ashamed to call what it is. They're not ashamed to ask for help. They're not ashamed to weep over it and to fast over it and to ask friends to fast over it with them. So all this happens, this lamenting, so that on your outline, number four can happen, repentance. But what we want is this, repentance that is godly and not worldly. There's a difference, okay? There's worldly repentance and there's godly repentance. There's two different types. My fear is this, most of our repentance is honestly what's called a worldly repentance and not a godly repentance. Psalm 51, 17 says this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, oh God, you will not despise. Would you look at verse 12 and 13 with me? What does godly repentance look like in relation to worldly repentance? What does that look like? Verse 12, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your, what does it say, church? With all your what? So it's something on the inside, heart, mind, soul. It's all describing the inner man, who you are. They like to use the word heart. That was for them the seatbed of, of everything. Come to me with all your heart. He says in verse 13, and rend your heart and not your garment. So when you look at godly repentance, what does godly repentance looks like? It Godly repentance is this 
A change on the inside that results on the change on the outside. It's a change at the heart level that results in a change on the outward action level. It's a you're looking at your sin in relation to how you've offended a holy savior and then that's transforming what you do from there. That's what godly repentance looks like. It starts in the heart. Jesus affirmed this. Matthew 15, 19. Jesus said this. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. For out of the heart. So, like, I hear people say, like, you know what? I didn't choose to do that. The devil made me do it. No, he didn't. He can tempt you, but he can't make you do anything, right? Your heart chose that. Your own desires, your own worship. Jesus said in Mark 7:21, for from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. These things come from within. Once again, what, what we do is actually a reflection on the, the inside. What we're worshiping, what we're desiring is what we actually in the end do. So repentance, godly repentance is this change on the inside that results in a change on the outside. And just so you know, the way it starts is this. You have to, we, you, say we have to see our sin as offensive to a holy God. Here's what we do with a lot of our sin. We sin and then we compare our sin against someone else and go, well, you know what? I'm not that bad. But when we start comparing our sin to the holiness of God, his unsullied character, it starts to change our heart. When we start to see our sin as how offensive it is to God. It's offensive enough to God that he would that He would take the life of his own son and let him bear the wrath of our sin in his place. It is that offensive. It is that offensive that the Lord declares there is a day, a day of the Lord coming. Now, it's not that the Lord gets some jolly out of judging sin. It's because the Lord can't be anything more than what he is. He is completely holy and unsullied with with sin. But yet he's so loving enough that he sends his son to provide a way that sin can be forgiven and that people can stand in his presence and not receive his wrath. So the repentance here, he says, I want you to return to me with all your heart. Rend your heart and not your garments. I don't want just your outside garments. I want your heart. Because if God gets your heart, then the outside changes. Now you might be saying, so what does ungodly or worldly repentance look like? What's kind of like this. Worldly repentance is this. You, you feel bad for what you've done, and you may change your outward actions, but there's been no change of heart about things. Like worldly repentance, maybe you feel bad because you got caught, or you feel bad because you have a guilty conscience, and you may even try to make some actions to make things better, but as you're doing those actions, all you're really doing is just bickering about that other person's sins against you. You're really not broken before the Lord. It's just kind of a man will kind of thing. And what happens is when you have worldly repentance, whatever change you have, it's surface level. You'll eventually go right back to it. Godly repentance is there's a change of heart that results in a change on the outside. Worldly repentance is there, there is, I feel bad and sorrow for what I've done. But there's no change on the inside. And any outside change is is just temporary. It's just soothing over things. That's the difference between these two. Now, by the way, there's some words used for this in the Bible. Um, there's a word that's used for godly repentance. It's called, it's um, it's meta, uh, meta noel. It's the word that you see for godly repentance. But then there's a word for ungodly repentance called meta melomai. Now, do y'all remember Judas back in, um, you remember when Judas 
betrayed the Lord. And if you have like a King James version, it says in your King James in Matthew 27, 3, it says that when Judas had done this, it said he repented himself for what he had done. The word used there is meta, uh, meta, I gotta look at that, meta melomai. It's the word that's used for an ungodly repentance. It's the word that Judas is used for his repentance in Matthew 27, 3. Judas' repentance was this, he felt bad for what he had done, but there was really no repentance, no godly. It was, a, I felt bad for what I'd done. And even he tried to make it right in some way. He tried to bring back the 30 pieces of silver, but there was no heart transformation. Thus, there was no life transformation. And when there's no life transformation, then, then what happens with ungodly repentance, worldly repentance, it just leads you more into destruction and despair and misery. And before you know it, before the end of the story, Judas is out committing suicide. This is evidence that he didn't have godly repentance. Godly repentance does something different. As we saw last week in 2 Corinthians, when you have godly repentance, it restores joy. There's a restoration of relationship with God. Let me give you a couple of compare and contrasts here, okay? When it has, I've, I've kind of made a list of ways that you can diagnose and look at, is my repentance godly or is it worldly? And by the way, this helps you even know when you're trying to forgive someone. When you forgive someone, you always forgive from the heart, but depending on what the person's done, there might be a time where you have to say, you know, I want to forgive you, and I'm so anxious to do that. I've forgiven you before the Lord, but I want to forgive you relationally. But I, I want to see the fruits of repentance. This, can, this list can kind of help you. So here it is. When someone is, has godly repentance, it's very God-focused. When someone has worldly repentance, it's very man-focused. When someone has godly repentance, they have a renewed faith in the work of the cross. When someone has worldly repentance, they have faith in what they can do to make it right alone i.e. Judas. I mean, Judas, the sign of godly repentance for Judas would have been that he would have ran to the Savior. I mean, like like Peter, who, who denied Christ three times, Peter's, we find in the end, Peter's running to Jesus. Judas, not running to Jesus. Judas is trying to make it right on his own self-efforts. Man can't save himself. He's never been able to save himself. We're too unfaithful to do that kind of thing. When there's godly repentance, the person receives mercy. But when there's Ungodly repentance, the person continues to have feelings of condemnation. When there's godly repentance, there's an inward change that leads to an outward change. When there's ungodly repentance, there's a temporary outward change, but with no real inward change. When there's godly repentance, there's humility and brokenness before the Lord. Get this. When there's worldly repentance, there's pridefulness and still a focus on everybody else's sins and not your own. When there's... Godly repentance, there is now a renewed dependence and trust on the work of Christ. When there is worldly repentance, there's a renewed dependence on self. When there is a godly repentance, there is joy and peace that comes about as a result. When there's worldly repentance, there's just continual misery. When there's godly repentance, there's this filling of the Holy Spirit. When there is worldly repentance, there is a less filling of the Holy Spirit. When there is godly repentance, there's a focus on what Jesus has done. When there is a worldly repentance, there's a focus on what others have done against you and a focus on what you have done. When there is a godly repentance, you compare your sin to God's holiness. When there is a worldly repentance, you compare your sin to other people's sins and you put yourself on on some sacred pedestal. When there is godly repentance, you grieve over what your sin has done to Christ. But when there's worldly repentance, you just grieve over what your sin has done to you or to other people. But when you, but just so you know this, 
when you do grieve over your sins and what is done to Christ in godly repentance, it will lead you to feel grief over how you've affected other people. When there's godly repentance, there's heart change. There's no heart change in worldly repentance. You see the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness when godly repentance is there. But when worldly repentance, there is a continual walk in the lusts of the flesh. When there is a godly repentance, there is a trust in God for continuing to repent. When there is a worldly repentance, it's a trust in your own self-goodness to continue to repent. Now, I know that may seem like, wow, Nick, that's so detailed. (laughs) I think we ought to be kind of experts on repentance. We really should. We really should. And here's why. And by the way, just so you know, when when you repent, like there's a word we use for repentance all the time. We say the word I apologize for what I've done. You know that word apology is really a, a legal defense word to defend the actions of what you've done? Have you ever noticed when we use the word I apologize, we usually somewhere in that sentence use the word but? Like, I apologize for saying that, but I only said that because you said this, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about. Come on. But here's what you do when you, when you, when you repent. Like to people. When you repent to the Lord, when you repent to people, you call your sin what it is before a holy God. And if you've sinned against somebody, you go to somebody and you say, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you. You name out what you did. And then if you're repentant, you're asking for forgiveness so that they can, they can complete the promise and transaction and can be done away with. You know, a lot of times in your, your, your relationships in life, you may be bringing up stuff from the past and just causing more problems in the relationship because there's never been a really good transaction of repentance and forgiveness. So like when I repent, when I say I've sinned against God, I've sinned against you, this is what I did, will you forgive me? I'm asking for them to make a promise that they'll never be brought up again. Now, they only make that promise if they can see the evidence of repentance. But nonetheless, you'd be surprised how many things, I mean, I know you all know nothing about this. We know nothing about this. Have you ever noticed how many times we bring up stuff from the past that should have already been forgiven and dealt with and put away, we just haven't done the transactions right? A lot of times we've done this kind of flimsy, worldly kind of transaction, which is, I apologize for what I've done. Never asking for the promise and commitment of forgiveness, and never going so far as to do something really hurtful, which is, I sinned against God and I sinned against you. Try it the next time. The next time you sin against somebody, say, I apologize, and see how easy that is. And then the next time, do this. Say, I sinned against God and I sinned against you. And watch which one of those two is much harder than the other. Because it gets right at us. But the Lord wants to do this. The Lord wants to bring us to repentance. Why would he want to do that? Is he, does he just kind of get his kicks off seeing us, off seeing us go through that lamenting? Well, let's finish what the text says. Number five. Are y'all with me so far? Are y'all okay? Y'all, y'all awake? Y'all kicking? Okay. Hey, I know this is hard. This is hard truth. Um, but it's good truth and it's stuff like, like we we are like if we are not repentant people, like our lives will not follow the Lord, and we are the worst of people to be around, and we are not prepared for glory. So number five, the Lord delights in our repentance, guys. He delights in it. He delights in it. Now, why can I say something like this? Why does the Lord delight in our repentance and godly repentance? Why does He love it so much? I'll show you why. Because it says right here in verse thirteen. Return to the Lord your God. By the way, actually, let me read verse 13. And rend your hearts. 
What he's talking about is this godly repentance from the inside that results in the outside and not your garments. Return to the Lord, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over this disaster. This is why the Lord delights in our repentance. It's a wonderful opportunity for him to show his character. This is why he likes it so much. He loves to show his character. Look in verse 13 with me. He says, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and what? Merciful. He is grace and mercy. In, in, in mercy, we don't get what we deserve. In grace, we get better than what we deserve. I'll say it to you again. In mercy, we don't get what we deserve. In grace, we get better than what we deserve. In mercy, I don't get hell. In grace, I get heaven. The Lord loves to show his kind of character like this. Why does he want us to repent? Because it's a great opportunity. Look at this. He also, we don't know anything about this, is slow to what? Slow to anger. Oh, he'll come to righteous anger and he'll do it. But he's so slow to do it. In fact, I love what Romans 2, 4 says. It says this. Do you know this, that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? You know that every time that we've gotten into sin and we haven't experienced the disciplining hand of God immediately on that, it is God's long-suffering hand on us to say, wait a minute. Look how gracious he's been to me to not bring discipline. Man, this just makes me want to repent. The long suffering of God. So God has been warning them and warning them and warning them for years because he, he doesn't want to bring about it, but he will and it's time. But just the fact that he is slow to anger. This is why even here he's saying to them, he's giving them another chance. He's saying, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to me with all your heart. He wants to show forth his character. His character is slow to anger, which, by the way, is that our character? Man, we twist off pretty fast, don't we? Don't we? People say, like, why do I get angry so fast, Nick? I'll tell you why. One is this. You don't trust that God is actually ultimately sovereign over that situation. See, the scriptures tell us in James 1.20 that, 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 that we give place to God's wrath. And so, like, when someone has done something wrong to you, you can forgive and know that God will actually take care of this. You're not the judge. He is, and he does a much better job of this kind of thing. So that's how you can kind of drop your anger. But also, it reveals to us in James 1.19 that a lot of times we're angry because we are, are, instead of being swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, what are we? We're swift to wrath, swift to open up our mouth, and after we've done already done, like, Sherman's March on Georgia, then we'll kind of listen. You know, sometimes even in our communication, if we just listened first, we probably wouldn't get so angry very fast if we understood where the person was coming from. But that's just free. That's extra. So he says this, I'm slow to anger. Oh, man. Now look at this. So he says, I'm gracious, I'm merciful, I'm slow to anger, and I'm abounding, which means I've got plenty of it in steadfast love. The Hebrew word for steadfast here is chased. Chased. It's this... It's, it, what it means is the unfaithful, steadfast, loyal love of Yahweh. The, uh, the steadfast, loyal love of law, Yahweh. It means that when we've been faithless, he's been faithful. And so our repentance is a great opportunity for him to show his steadfast love. That he would keep forgiving us. That he would keep pursuing us. That he would keep coming after us. And not only that, look at the rest of verse 13 with me. And he relents over this disaster. That word relents is the word naham. Naham is actually that word that sometimes, like in your King James Bible, for God, it'll say that God repents. My ESV says the word relent. But that word, like for instance, just so you know, God never repents in the way that we repent. 
There's a word in the hand that's used right here that talks about God's repentance or his relenting. It's not that God made a bad decision or God changes his mind. He doesn't do that kind of thing. What it means is that his posture towards a person has changed. So like, for instance, I'm a daddy. And my, when my daughters sin, that does not change that I'm their daddy and that I love them. But my posture to them will change. Until I see repentance, there will be discipline that's coming in their life. But yet, as soon as I see them turn, and when I see them repent, I delight to show mercy and grace back to them. I delight to be slow to anger. I delight to get to show steadfast love. Well, I delight when I'm walking right with Jesus, right? When I'm being sinful, I just am tired of being inconvenienced, right? Y'all know nothing about that, right? What happens is this. The way it works with God is, same way, he doesn't repent in the sense of, God changes his mind and that he was going this direction and not like he's not sovereign or God makes a mistake in the direction he's going. That's how our repentance, we go in the wrong direction. God never goes the wrong direction. When the Bible talks about him repenting or relenting, that Hebrew word Nahem is talking about the posture of God towards us. So meaning in the text, when he says, look in verse 14, this is what you see. He relents over this disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent of what's happened. And leave a blessing behind him. So what the scripture is saying is telling us that God's character is he wants to turn his posture from being that of judgment, that of discipline for his children, to that of mercy, grace, and steadfast love. He wants to do that. And when the scriptures talk about God repenting, all it's saying is, is that his posture is changing at that moment based on are his children repenting or not. It isn't questioning his love. It's not saying that God changes his mind as fickle because that's not God's character. It's, it's his posture. Just like my posture with my girls. I will, I will come at them with more discipline when I don't see them broken over their sin. But when I see brokenness over their sin, I delight to show this character of God of a gracious and merciful and steadfast love. That's what God wants. That's the character that he has. That's what wants to be shown in all this. Now, I want to end with this. I want you to notice something. Look at verse 14. Are y'all still with me? I got three people. Verse 14. Who knows whether he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? A grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Now look at verse 14. This blows my mind. So if they repent, the Lord gets to show his character. And he wants to do this. Like if you're here without Christ today, he wants to show his mercy and grace to you through the work of the cross. That's what he wants to do. You can call out to him today. If we're in sin, he wants to show his mercy and grace and his steadfast love and be slow to anger. He wants to relent of the discipline that can come in our lives when we are not repentant. But ultimately, he wants to do that not only for his character's sake, but for what it's going to do in your own seeking his face. Because look at verse 14. Who knows whether or not he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Now, remember, they had the locust plague, right? And when the locust plague destroys the agriculture, when the invading armies destroy the agriculture, do you get to do any more drink offerings, any more grain offerings? No, because the agriculture has gone. 
But he's saying here, like, if the Lord relents of this disaster on you, if you repent and come back to him, he gets to show his graciousness. And and now your land doesn't have to go through this scorched earth policy. You can now offer a grain offering again, and you can offer a drink offering again, which is interesting. Joel's not concerned about what's on their table as much as he's concerned about where their face is turning. It's not about what they can get from God, but what they can do in their worship of God. And here's the interesting thing. When you look at all the offerings that you could give, the grain offering was a free will offering. It was a, it was an offering that you had lots of leeway of how you were going to give it. And the, the main modus of the, of the grain offering was worship. It was your expression of worship. In fact, you mixed the grain offering often with frankincense and myrrh, so it, it denoted joy. So when you see the grain offering, it's denoting this joy, this excitement and worship for God. When you get the drink offering, the drink offering was something they poured. Uh, it was wine that would be poured on the altar as part of the sacrifice. It's a pouring out. Paul calls himself a drink offering, a sacrificing for other people. So when the Lord says, I want to relent of this disaster, so because I can show my character, then ultimately you can be brought back to doing grain offerings, which is a worship of the Lord. And you can be back to drink offerings, sacrificing your life for the for the sake of the Lord, which is interesting about this. How do you know that repentance looks godly and not ungodly? When there is a godly repentance, there is a restoration of joyful worship, and there is a restoration of joyful sacrifice. There is new grain and new drink offerings being offered to the Lord. And what's interesting even about all this is this. The grain offering, the drink offering, the burnt offering, the wave offering, every kind of offering, who is it ultimately pointing to? Jesus. So I love this text because he says, if, if, if you relent and I actually get to come back here and you get to worship me again. And in the end, our text is pointing us to the ultimate grain offering, Jesus. Like you can't worship God unless you worship God through Jesus. And, and what is Jesus? Jesus is the final drink offering. On the cross, he spilt his blood offering the ultimate sacrifice for us in our place. So when true repentance happens... It can do nothing but ultimately lead us to Jesus. So if you look in your chair, do y'all see this little piece of cloth that you have in your chair? Okay, we have a song we're going to sing for you here. Um, And all you have to do is this. Just stay in your seat where you're at. We just have a song that that Tyler and Cindy are going to sing um, to kind of help us see what's going on. So that, that little piece of cloth is actually kind of like a sackcloth. And part of the lamenting was a sackcloth. Like when you were lamenting, you'd have a sackcloth. There's a song that we're going to sing, and in this song um, that they're going to sing to us, he says, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's him expressing lament. And that lament, you'll see in the song, leads the writer of the song to repent. So this lamenting is leading to repenting. And uh, we give you that piece of cloth as something you can walk out of here with today that And the times of your sin being so great, know this, that as you start to lament and repent, ultimately it's meant to just bring you right back to the Savior. And the grain and the the grain offering and the drink offerings are all meant to drive you back to Jesus. And and even here in the song, I love the song, in the song he says a phrase, he says, nothing else will do, you, uh, you will... Nothing else will do, just you alone, Jesus. All I want is you, Jesus. Nothing else will satisfy like Jesus. This is, by the way, a sign of godly lamenting that leads to godly repenting. It's like 
nothing else will do but Jesus. Your sin has lost its fun. So people say, like, how do I get out of sin, Nick? You worship your way out of it. That's what you do. That's heart change. Like, when he becomes better, then whatever sin pattern doesn't taste the same anymore. When he becomes better, your, your mouth doesn't salivate over that sin anymore. When he becomes better, when he becomes better, that's heart change that results in life change. The results in repentance. The results in the character of God getting to get lavished on our life. It results in a renewed worship of God, a renewed sacrifice for God, and a renewed thrust and joy for who Jesus is. So do this. We're just going to sing for a minute to your soul a song of lamenting and repenting, and then we'll sing again together. Just let them minister to your soul right now between you and the Lord.